The CFO Bookshelf August Book of the Month is Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art of war. And we were blessed to get to chat with Boyd's biographer this week, Robert Corum. And that interview is coming up next. Bruce, have you ever read a book that just reached out and gripped you, a book that's left its mark on you? I've, I've read several books. Uh, there's some that, that reach out and grab me from a professional, personal standpoint. Um, there it's people who find themselves in, um, in sticky professional situations or, or professional situations that sound familiar. There's been some books I've read that were, were really gripping from a personal standpoint. You know, when, when you find something, find something like that, it, I mean, it does, it does, that leaves you thinking after you're done reading it. That, that's a pretty special read. Bruce, I first came across the name John Boyd while reading a blog post about the OODA loop over at Farnham Street. So Boyd has always been in the back of my mind. Uh, this summer, I listened to Boyd and I enjoyed it so much. I immediately read the Kindle version. What did you think of Colonel Boyd? I think the first thing was just the, um, on one hand, the level of professional integrity that Boyd had that when he believed something was right, he couldn't let it go. And, and then it would go a step further that he also held grudges. You know, he was, he was definitely a complex personality um, there. But I mean, somebody who was just relentless in, in his pursuit of excellence on the things that he valued. You don't have to read far into the book to realize this guy was a hard ass. I mean, the guy was a maniac. You know, think Jobs, think Bezos. And, and also, I, I thought his family life was, it was terrible. And his wife uh, hung in there. They did not go through a divorce. And he had just, just no relationship with his kids. Bruce, can, can you be a, a mover and a shaker in this world and still have a great family life? You know, I, I think that there's, I don't know that there's a large number of examples that, that, that you learn about that where that, that balance, that there was that balance, that everything, um, you know, everything was great at the office, everything was great at home. I, I think there's, it's, it's a, it seems to be a teeter-totter and it's very difficult to do both. Um, and because he was so extreme, on on the work end and he was you know calling the acolytes at two in the morning and and they would basically listen while he talked and he would go th and he would go through all of these things and i think i think maybe even his career suffered arguably to a degree because of that same level of intensity and single-mindedness that he that he took in the workplace as depressing as that part of his life was i loved his mantra and what are your aspirations. So, so Bruce, buddy, do you want to be somebody or do you want to do something? A good portion of the business world focuses their attention on being somebody. So often at the end, if somebody puts so much time and focus on, you know, providing a lot of times what you hear is I would, I would have preferred to have less of whatever and a little bit more of you. So Mark, let's jump into um, your conversation with Robert Corum, the author of, the author of Boyd,
the fighter pilot who changed the art of war. I'm not going to say you did not almost, or you almost did not write the book, but I just learned just a couple of minutes ago that Chuck Spinney, who is one of the Boyd acolytes, who we'll talk about in a minute, he hounded you, I guess, for a while. So tell us a little bit about the origin of this book, because it's not like you had heard of Boyd, right? I was a military affairs writer for the Atlanta Constitution, and in that context, I met Chuck Spinney, who was just raising hell with everybody in the Pentagon. And almost from our first conversation, he talked about uh, John Boyd. I didn't know Boyd. I'd never heard of him. And frankly, I wasn't interested. And uh, I left the paper and wrote several novels and then came back. And uh, I didn't have an idea for another book. So I called Chuck. I said, okay, tell me more about this guy. And I went to Washington for about a week and I saved with Chuck, as a matter of fact. And uh, we spent 18 hours or so a day talking about board, and uh, he introduced me to a couple of other board acolytes. And I realized very quickly this was the best story I'd ever run across. And I spent about six months writing a proposal. It was uh, 46 pages long. I sent it to my agent, William Morris. He read it over a weekend, sent it out uh, Monday morning, and had an offer from Little Brown by noon. Amazing. It. Do you even have a rough idea how many copies you've sold? I, I know it's probably got to be pushing maybe a half a million. I, I think I've read somewhere where at least a quarter of a million uh, copies have been sold, but I think that's an old number. I, I Any idea? Mark, I don't know. I have sent a, a notice to Little Brown trying to find out because they've got the correct numbers, and I don't have access to a website where I could uh, – get that but i know it's in excess of two hundred thousand. beyond that it's just guesswork but ask me next week and i should have a definite answer the way i want to structure our conversation is i was thinking about this book and this this book gripped me it gripped me hard not only did i listen to it i then read the book and i was actually slow in reading it because I'd read something, and it's like I'd, I'd not heard of that. So I'd go out and do some other reading. Um, so the, the book just grabbed me, and I came up with seven buckets or seven pillars. They all start with the letter M, uh, the man, the major, the maniac, the mission, the men, the management machine, the menage, because I couldn't think of a name. <laughs> I couldn't think of a name for family, so I came up with uh, the menage. So let's go back to the man. So whether you've read the book or not, or maybe you have heard of Boyd, I know when I got into the second half of the book, I'd almost forgot, Robert, that he was a fighter pilot. But the man himself, how would you describe him to someone at a dinner party or with friends? First of all, he was a genius. There's no doubt about that. His work has stood up uh, over the past 18 years or so. Uh, anytime you talk to a Marine officer, you will hear Boyd's name within five minutes. Uh, Boyd was a driven man, an obsessed man, uh, a highly moral man. He always had the moral high ground. Uh, men like him don't come along often. When, as a biographer, how emotionally attached do you get to a character, and again, this is a person who, I mean, not, we're not talking fiction because you've been a fiction writer, but 
did you develop some type of a, a relationship with the person who had lived uh, before us? No, uh, four or five people had gotten to him after he retired, uh, and I didn't know him then. And I think he died in 1997, and I came along a year or so after that. And uh, he would not have let me do the book had he been alive. He was he didn't want to talk about his poverty back in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, the criticism, the ridicule he faced, uh, frequent insanity, not insanity, of uh, mental disorders in his family. So I did not know the man. And frankly, I'm not sure we would have gotten along well had I met him. Uh, and I think you could say that for many, many other people, I, I have a feeling. Well, the next bucket is the major. So he went I don't, I don't have the exact count, but he was passed over uh, toward, his, uh, toward being made colonel. So he's a major for a number of years, but I think some of his greatest accomplishments, if I'm not mistaken, were when he was at the rank of major. I think that's when uh, he developed his uh, EM uh, theory. Would you say the EM theory is his crowning achievement, or would it be something else? Well, all of his work is tied together. The EM theory, uh, the OODA loop, uh, patterns of conflict, and they're all linked. If you look at them progressively, you can see how one led to the other. Uh, I was over at Beaufort Air Force, uh, Marine Corps base a year or so ago talking to the uh, fighter pilots there, and one of them showed me a quick glance of the uh, manual he carried in the cockpit. He flew an F-35, and the uh, he had the EM diagrams, dozens of pages, and today those are highly classified. Uh, but that's the, the pilot's brief on the EM chart before every flight uh, to see if they can do what they're supposed to do. And in case anyone's listening and they're hearing EM theory, I believe that's energy maneuverability theory, which I think that came as a result of his getting his industrial engineering degree at, what was it, Georgia Tech, am I correct? Mm-hmm. He had a degree from uh, University of Iowa in economics, and after spending several years at uh, Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, he knew he needed an engineering degree if the work he was interested in was to continue. So I went to Tech, Georgia Tech, and got a degree in industrial engineering. And while there, uh, he was having someone explain thermodynamics to him, and he had the epiphany that became the uh, energy maneuverability. And after he got out of tech, he was promoted to major, and he went down to Eglin Air Force Base in the Florida Panhandle, which is sort of a hobby shop for the Air Force. They test things and shoot things and drop bombs. And it was there that he was able to test the EM theory and give it ecclesiastical weight. And once he did that and he briefed the senior leaders of the Air Force, and the EM theory became doctrine in the Air Force, uh, Board was just out of control. He just... Uh, lived, breathed, slept, uh, energy maneuverability. Robert, you also mentioned the the OODA loop. When I sent you my questions ahead of time, you may notice I did not include the OODA loop because it is, it's complex. Do, yes. do, you, do you agree with that, that, that comment about the OODA loop is overly complex? Um, that's a fair statement. A lot of people think they understand it, but they don't. And Boyd was reluctant to really spread it widely because he figured if someone really knew it and really understood it, it, it could be dangerous. The next pillar or the next bucket I want to hit, and you said this at the beginning, 
Boyd was a maniac. I mean, he was just, I, I don't know if I could have handled working for him for 10 minutes. Uh, the maniac kind of jump in there, Robert, how, how would, how would you finish off that, that statement that Boyd was a maniac? When he left, uh, Eglin in Florida, he was sent to the Pentagon. The Air Force was in trouble at the time. They needed a fighter aircraft to replace the, uh, the F-4 Phantom, uh, which was a Navy airplane that had been forced off on them. And they had done the F-111, which was just a miserable swing-wing aircraft, a miserable failure. And the Air Force knew it was about to have another Navy plane forced on it. And the people who design aircraft in the Pentagon couldn't get away from the bigger, higher, faster, further syndrome. And they were doing a plane to replace the uh, F-4. It was more or less like the F-111. And Boyd knew if they got that through, that the uh, Congress would not let them build an airplane like the F-111. And they, uh, the Pentagon gave Boyd carte blanche to design a new aircraft. And uh, he... Uh, uh, used computers and uh, some of his friends who are some of the smartest people I've ever met, and they spent months and months designing what became the F-15, uh, an airplane that's never been defeated in aerial combat. If Boyd were to go to a birthday party, I'm guessing one of his gifts would have been a garden hose because he loved hosing generals. He loved hosing anyone who was on the career track instead of putting their country first. This is a guy who never made general because of his personality. Could Boyd, now this is opinion. This may be an unfair question, Robert. Could could Boyd have been as effective had he been more softer around the edges? Uh, I'm not sure he could have done what he did had he been softer around the edges because people who make that sort of a those sort of advancements, it's not easy to push against the bureaucracy of the Pentagon. It had to be a wild man who was plowing into it. And uh, uh, that's what Boyd was. Uh, people who follow the rules and go by the careerism track don't do things such as Boyd did. Don't make that kind of discovery. John Boyd was a man on a mission. He had a mantra, one of my favorite parts in the book, He's telling one of his younger acolytes, he wasn't probably considered an acolyte at the time, but he said, you can be somebody or do something. And he that, that came up more than once in your great writing of, of this biography of John Boyd. He was a man on a mission, wasn't he? Could you succinctly put or describe what that mission was? Uh, every, the most common refrain I hear when people ask me about the book is they were all touched by that to be or to do speech. And uh, I think that's at the heart of Board's thinking, his work, his evolution. Uh, he wanted to do something rather than be somebody. And uh, that's what drove him. He wanted to make a contribution to his country and to his Air Force. And uh he would not stand up for any obstacles in his path. He was just, he was obsessed. This is purely opinion. And obviously I've not done your research, but when I think of Boyd's mission, he had all these obstacles 
because he wanted to see a Navy and an Air Force and a Marines and an Army that was adaptable and agile, who had this tempo about them that was always one step ahead of the enemy. And number two, very people-oriented of putting soldiers first, soldiers first. That's the way I think of his mission. I, I think that was his true north, as I, as I read, between the pay, read between the lines of, of your great words. Is that a fair uh, assessment of his mission? Uh, yeah, I would say that's a, that's a good assessment of it. He believed in people first, uh, uh, ideas second, and machinery third. And that goes against everything the military uh, holds. They, they believe in uh, machines first, especially the Air Force, technocracy. And uh, all they want is uh, bigger, better, higher, farther, faster machines. And, and they're, they've gotten so expensive, like the F-35, that Last I heard, the uh, count, including research and development, was about $170 million an airplane. Now, what, what are you going to use an airplane that expensive against? You can't use a ground support. It could be shot down by somebody with AK-47. It's just, and the Air Force had to let go a number of career people in order to have the money to pay for the airplane. So uh, that's more, more of the same. The Pentagon's more today like it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. They've not learned anything. Every great leader has disciples. John Boyd had six, and they they are called the Acolytes. And again, you did a great job at really painting the picture of each of these six men. Uh, several of them you became good friends with. We don't have to list all of them, but why did these six men, why do you think they followed John to begin with? Uh, they had a lot of things in common. They're all very bright, very patriotic, uh, unbending in their character and rectitude. And they were absolute followers of board. And everyone suffered, his career suffered to one degree or another because of his friendship with board. And it was my great surprise in researching the book when I would ask I say Chuck Spinney or Pierre Spray or Jim Burton about how Boyd hurt their career. They really got upset because they said that knowing John Boyd was the white hot center of their life and they would have do it all over again gladly. That the, the downside of uh, his effect on their career was uh, not nearly so great as the upside of having been associated with Boyd and working with him and being a part of what he did. This may be the hardest question you get. Robert, John Boyd's legacy, is it his writings, his teaching, or is his greatest legacy, legacy those six men? Oh, good question. They are, they've all moved on more or less, so they're not involved in the Pentagon work anymore. They're, like all of us, are getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, but the EM theory lives on. Uh, Patterns of Conflict is a briefing that lives on. Uh, his... Uh, Destruction and creation is a, it says the back of the book. Uh, that really attracts people also. Uh, the men are, uh, I, I don't know how to answer that. The men are, men are certainly a, a great legacy, but uh, his work, the EM chart particularly, uh, hangs around. I, I want to change gears real quickly and talk about the management machine. If you had asked me before I read your book, 
what does the Pentagon do? And I think you're going to smile as I'm as I say this because I, I sure you've heard this before. Two months ago or a month ago, I would have thought, okay, this is where they keep America safe. Uh, that they, they have all the secrets. <laughs> they they are kings and queens of strategy. But that's not the case. They're a big purchasing machine. I had no idea that the Pentagon was all about buying equipment, buying technology. That's their main goal, to get more money than the other services and to just get all the money they can. And the board said that uh, the Pentagon wasn't so much interested in buying planes that could beat the Russians. They wanted to buy planes that were better than the other branches of the service. and it's the same today as it was then. Look at the F-35, for instance, the Joint Strike Fighter, and uh, the F-20. It's just, uh, and there are other uh, projects uh, that are coming down the road that are, I, I don't know about their efficacy. I, I do know they're very expensive. And, and people in the Pentagon make their careers on being a project officer for these very expensive aircraft or equipment, pieces of equipment. It's... Uh, the, whole, the sole idea is to get more money than the Air Force wants to get more money than the Navy, and the Navy more than the Marines, and everybody more than the Army. It's uh, it's rather discouraging when you back off and uh, look at it, uh, the power that the contractors have. This may be an unfair question, Robert, but do you think Boyd would still be frustrated with the Pentagon of today? Even more so than he was back then, yes. I almost feel guilty saying I love your book because as we as we readers are reading the first few chapters and getting halfway through, we're, we're beginning to see that not a great family life. And then I think in the epilogue, then, then we get the final nail in the coffin. This was not a family man, did not have, and he did not go through a divorce, but he had children who probably did not look up to him. I think one of his daughters, whose name escapes me, uh, started working for him near the end. I think he had one or two boys who did not want to be around him. Um, It's just sad to see a guy, incredible talents, great gifts, but then there's no family life. How, how, how How did you even respond to that? as a writer, as you were writing his biography, were you disappointed, surprised? Well, I was surprised. The first big surprise was when I interviewed uh, uh, Mrs. Board down in Delray Beach. Uh, she told me things in our first interview, which lasted several hours, that I would have been elated for her to say after the fifth or sixth interview. She just gave up all the family secrets uh, and just sat there very calmly telling me these terrible things about her husband and about her family and uh, about him. I think she had a lot of passive, I'm not a psychologist, but she obviously had some passive aggressive feelings about him because she said things about her husband that just astonished me. And I think it was resentment. Uh, They lived in this terrible apartment in Washington for 23 years and he ignored his uh, family for much of that time. He had zero relationship with most of his children. Uh, it, was a, it was a terrible family life, terrible husband he was. Similar question that I asked earlier, could Boyd have been a great man, but also been a great family man at the same time? I don't know. That's a really good question. I think it runs up against a lot of people who have great accomplishment because 
I think at some point in your career, you most of the time you have to make a choice. Am I going to concentrate on my work or concentrate on my family? And a lot of say my family is the most important and that's where they uh, devote their energies. But others like Boyd are just obsessed by their work. And to him, that's all that was important. He had five children and then he could get on with his work. And uh, it's hard to rationalize or, and, and to balance the scales and say, was his work just work uh, justify the harm he did to his family? I don't know the answer to that. It, it um, He just made a choice down the road. Before we wrap up, I want to throw some just some really quick, fast questions at you. If you could have spoken to Colonel Boyd, so he passed away a couple of years before you started the book, right. but had you been able to have met him, are there any one or two, three questions you wished you could have asked him face-to-face? No, I got pretty much what I wanted from his family and uh, from his uh, friends. And uh, I don't think he would have talked to me. I'm almost certain he wouldn't have. So it's a a conjecture to even get into that area. But uh, no, his wife and his uh, children and his friends gave me everything I needed. As as you can see by reading the book, I don't know what else I could have gotten from Boyd. As a matter of fact, there are things in the book I never would have gotten from him. What was the one thing... As you look back, what's the one thing you like about Boyd? I like his black and white world. So to him, everything was good or bad, um, uh, gray or no shades of gray. He was principled, unbending. As I said, he always occupied the moral high ground. He was a man of great character. In, in the end, uh, I think that's all that really matters. And again, I know this question may be hard, Robert, to answer unless you have friends and peers in the armed services, but can you tell if his legacy is enduring with the armed services today, specifically the Marines, uh, even the Air Force? It is in the Marine Corps, certainly. As I mentioned earlier, you can't talk to a Marine officer today more than five minutes without hearing Board's name. He's taught in all the Marine Corps schools at Quantico. Uh, The Army, not so much. Uh, Air Force is more or less rejected him they uh, uh they don't there's no picture of him in the pentagon no monument name for him they uh he was a red-headed stepchild to the air force so the marines have held on to him and are very proud of him. they uh consider him one of their own we have already had in our young podcast several new york times best-selling authors And I like to try to ask questions they've never been asked before. And one of the questions that we've gotten lucky with is if you were to go to your local community college or small college that you live near and did a, either a nine minute or an 18 minute TEDx talk, what would the topic be? Now you, I'm not going to allow you Robert to say, Hey, I don't do many speaking appearances anymore. But if you were to do a TEDx talk, what would it be? I think it would be about the importance of integrity. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, end of the month, end of your career, end of your life, uh, it's all about integrity. And whatever you are, whether you are a man of integrity or a man with no integrity, it, it follows you down through the years. It, it, it matters. Last question. You've stated earlier, we did not get into this, but you wrote some fiction. 
wanted to write that great, that great American novel. Uh, ended up writing some great uh, nonfiction books. Of course, this one, Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art of war. What are some of your favorite books that you like to read? Uh, what are some books maybe you've gifted? Uh, what are some of your favorite books from the past, from the recent past? I can give you uh, two, three. Uh, one would be Jim Webb's book, uh, Born Fighting. It's about the uh, 18th century migration of the uh, Scots, Scots-Irish to America who settled in the southern Appalachians. And they have an enormous presence in America today. Some 100,000 people came. They have a strong cultural identity, uh, individualism, a dislike for authority, strong military uh, tradition. In the Revolutionary War, they were 40% of the army. It's a culture of isolation, of hard luck, stubbornness, mistrust of the nation's elite. Uh, they formed and still dominate blue-collar America, the military, and country music. Uh, it's just a subcult. And Jim Webb has a big chip on his shoulder about this because he came out of the Appalachians, and uh, uh, he, he just is very defensive in a way. He's proud of his background, but yet defensive about it. Uh, another book, just a, an amazing book, was Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. It's about how the uh, Comanches blocked the westward expansion of America for about 40 years. They were the most warlike tribes, successful tribe in American history. And they fought from horseback. And a lot of the soldiers weren't used to people, uh, Indians fighting from horseback. They uh, inspired the creation of the Texas Rangers, uh, the six-shooter. Uh, and one of the Comanches was a uh, uh, half-breed son of Juana Parker, a woman who'd been kidnapped by the Comanches when she was quite young, grew up with the Comanches, and her son, Quana, was uh, the most warlike and the greatest of all the Comanche chiefs, and uh, he uh, fought the army to a dead heat. Finally, he uh, retired and lived peacefully, but he is a, a man of legend in the book. Uh, pretty savage in ways, but the book gives all of his facets of his personality. And the third and last one would be uh, Young Man in Fire by Norman McLean. Uh, Norman McLean wrote uh, A River Runs Through It. Mm. Uh, Young Man in Fire is about the 1949 forest fire in Man Gulch in, in Montana. It took the lives of 13 smoke jumpers. Uh, McLean spent, I think he was 74 years old when he started writing it. And he didn't quite finish it before he died well into his 80s. But there was a lot of controversy about that many men dying on one forest fire. And um, McLean unraveled the story and, and wrote this beautifully, beautifully written book. You can see the man's spirituality, his honor, his integrity, uh, and above all, his incredible skill as a writer in that book. It's one that I reread every every year. So I just, uh, it's a token book for me. I go back again and again to read it. That occurred, it looks like, in 1949, the summer of 1949. I am definitely going to buy this book. The The last book, the second book you mentioned, Empire, the Summer Moon, I actually have that in my Audible uh, collection, but I have not listened to it yet, so I'm going to move that one up as well. So these are three books I am anxious to go through. So, um, 
I first started calling you an email, uh, Mr. Corum, and I feel like that's still what I should call you, but this has been an honor, sir. Uh, thank you for writing the book about John Boyd. You have influenced and inspired so many men and women around the world uh, with this great book. And all I can say is thank you for writing it. Thank you, Mark. It, it took me uh, three and a half years to write the book and comments like yours make it all worthwhile, especially 18 years after the book was published. So I thank you. Uh, Bruce, j- just what a special man, Robert Corum. He's amazing. I admire his humility that came out so much in the interview and his research skills. They are just so off the charts. Uh, before we wrap up, Bruce, why why is this book for financial leaders, in your opinion? Yeah, I think this I think this book is is very important for financial leaders because I, I think when you look at the Boyd personality, you could take that Boyd personality, and there are so many CFOs that you read about. Uh, I think in uh, in American Icon, they're the the CFO. Um, the CFO at Ford had a lot of the similar personalities to to what Boyd's personality was, and I, th- I think there's a lot of people in our um, our line of work who who have that same who have that same approach, and maybe learn something to either ratchet it up or maybe tone it down a little bit, or or find something in between that 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 suits you. Great point, Bruce Reed, CFO of Practice Link. How about a wrap? Mark, I, I enjoyed our time today. And everybody out there, have a great weekend. Let's stay safe, stay well, continue to love each other and practice empathy. And we'll talk to you again soon.